Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. dedicated to Henry Foreman. In the years of the primal force, the dawn of terrestrial birth, man mastered the mammoth and horse, and man was the lord of the earth. He made him an hollow skin from the heart of a holy tree. He compassed the earth therein, and man was the lord of the sea. He controlled the vigor of steam, he harnessed the lightning for hire, he drove the celestial team, and man was the lord of the Well, 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 here we are, the big six O. It seemed only recently that we reached the big five O. Well, I suppose that's what happens, isn't it? Yes, indeed, the big six O. Sixty episodes. Who knew that when we started there would be sixty episodes? to catalogue my descent into insanity, my descent into nonsensical meanderings every week, every Friday. Yes, well, indeed. Uh, I'm Alan Averill. This is Agitators Anonymous, episode 60. Let's keep trucking. Let's keep rolling. Circle the wagons. Let's do it. Um, The last episode was a little bit about... Uh, I suppose it was a bit about punk rock, cancel culture, a bit about me living as a teenage vampire in a wasp video, all sorts of things like that. Um, A bit more about music and a bit more about rock, but I said it would be part one of a maybe two-part ramble about a little bit about the 80s, about music culture and how it changed and shifted. And, well, let's get into it. Um, Yes, indeed, the big 6-0 kind of reminds me of this one time I was DJing uh, in Dublin and always, always was a what you would call a uh, T-shirt elitist and had an old, old Venom T-shirt from 1985 tour, tour with Exodus back, you know, on the back, dates on the back, world possession tour Venom. Very proud of it I was. And I was busy fixing some wires underneath the DJ booth and some girl tapped me on the shoulder and the first thing she said was 1985 that means you must be about 50 horror and disgust at the realization 
that your old elitist T-shirts age you? Well, this was when I was a little bit younger. And now that I'm approaching those ages, it seems even more utterly ridiculous. But there you go. Do you want the first print of every vinyl these days? Is that what we subscribe to? Mm, Not sure. Certainly with T-shirts, I'm quite well prepared to have aged myself by only having the original ones from the 80s, you know. But anyway, I digress into nonsense. Yes, the big 6-0, 60 episodes. Um, Quite the achievement, I suppose. Uh, I shall pat myself on the back for having reached that milestone as we sit through another rainy day in Dublin. This outside dining thing, hmm, yes indeed. Balmy summer's evenings in rain and cold Dublin. So what I was going to talk about was, basically, what happened to rock music in the mainstream. If you look on YouTube, you'll find lots of um, documentaries about what happened to rock music. You'll see old rockers from Angus Young and Gene Simmons um, well, actually not Angus Young, he doesn't say much, does he? But Gene Simmons and the likes saying, oh, no, rock isn't dead, it never went away, etc., etc. But the reality is that, at least in the mainstream, rock music died. Or at least it has no purchase with young people. So I'm going to look at maybe why that is, what happened to rock music at the end of the 80s, and how it got supplanted by other things. But first I have to do a little ad read, which is for Eisenwald Records, up-and-coming dark post-black metal, pagan metal label, um, www.isenton, E-I-S-E-N-T-O-N dot D-E or dot com in North America. Go there, put in the promo code A-L-A-N and you will get 10% off. Loads of great bands. Go and check it out. So what happened to rock music in the mainstream? Well, let's maybe go back to the 80s. Um, And certainly, if you look up the top 100 best-selling bands or albums of all time, Uh, Many of them you will find, especially once we get to the top 20, 25. There's a few anomalies, some really strange things. Soundtrack to the bodyguard, anyone? Um, But mainly they're um, white dudes with guitars. That's kind of what most of the preserve of the top um, 10, 20, 30 um, best-selling albums of all time are. They are the Eagles, they're Queens, they're Beatles, they're Rolling Stones, ACDC, etc. Lots of things that are quite unusual, quite odd in there that you wouldn't, um, you wouldn't quite consider. But yeah, take a look. We used to do this on tour all the time. We used to play the top 10 or the top 100 game and we would sit around guessing what was, according to Wikipedia, whatever it was, the top 10 most populated cities, uh, the top 10 uh, countries for suicide statistics and other such um, fun, fun tour games. But the top 100 best-selling albums was always a bone of much contention. Anyway, what happened to rock? Well, I mean, if you look at the traditional hard rock of the 1970s and 1980s, and the 1980s, it had its purple patch, and... There was, the to every Motley crew, I suppose, the original of the species, there was a winger, uh, a poison. And the whole scene of 1980s rock, I think, very much mirrored the society of the time. You can look back to this whole bonfire of the vanities, this whole... Um, This whole era was kind of exemplified in a lot of the movies of the time. There was definitely a sort of um, cocaine fueled we're not going to take it 
America, number one, Team America kind of vibe to most of the movies of the time. Whether you're looking back on the Schwarzenegger movies or the Stallone movies, there was very much a sort of atmosphere of a kind of simplistic atmosphere of always conquering against the odds within the mainstream. And a lot of heavy metal and hard rock in the 1980s, it fascinates me that it has this, um, it seems to have very little self-reflection. It has very little... Um, okay, in thrash metal, in death metal, what's happening in the underground, maybe there is. But it, the mainstream hard rock, whether it's the Dawkins or Cinderella's or Rats or whatever, it very much is about, at the heart of it, having a good time. And, you know, sort of simple, basic human emotions, I suppose, joy, love, etc. There's very little dark reflection going on. And I think it mirrors the way the music industry, or rather, mirrors the way the entertainment industry was at the time and also I suppose the nascent um, atmosphere within society after um, coming through the 1970s there was a very much a, a sort of new Reaganite Thatcherite um, burgeoning middle class as I said bonfire of the vanities cocaine fueled middle class that just simply wanted to rage and wanted to party excess is good greed is good this whole Gordon Gecko style um, approach to life this mantra and that was very much reflected in the poisons and the sunset strip bands and in the end i suppose they were groaning under the weight of their own excess and it was only a matter of time before somebody came along and punctured the bubble and all of those and deflated the balloon and whether it was the warrants the cherry pies very much part of this conversation or well this um this podcast I've been watching those VH1 goes undercover kind of documentaries and there was one about with Janie Lane from Warren who cut a very tragic figure at the end uh, drank himself to death in a a hotel room and who literally wrote wrote the song Cherry Pie uh, the night before the album came out or something so the myth goes wasn't supposed to be the name of the album the album was called Uncle Tom's Cabin um, which is a good song actually I quite enjoy that song uh, I quite enjoy the Warrant album after that, but that's another story. Maybe I'll pair this podcast with my favorite 80s uh, hair rock bands. But anyway, um, and he ended up being pilloried as the cherry pie guy. And he was going around the States, you know, um, adjudicating cherry pie eating contests, that kind of thing. And the whole 1980s hard rock thing was groaning under the weight of its own pomposity, its own uh, the weight of its own hairspray. It was, a, it was a lot of fun. There's no doubt about that. And there's many things about it that now I think we could do with a little bit in music. But certainly it was groaning under the weight of its own pomposity, the weight of its own um, hairspray, all those kind of things. And the weight of its own ridiculousness. There was a, a wind of change, so to speak, sweeping through music. I think... Actually, some of it was a delayed reaction in the United States to some of the bands that were popular in the 1970s and 1980s in the UK. The post-punk, post-wave bands, the the Smiths, the Cures, the Joy Divisions, all that kind of thing. I mean, I'll get to Nirvana, never mind. But what people maybe don't realize is that number one, as I understand it, in the United States before Nirvana, never mind, came out was The Cure. And um, whatever Cure album was out, was out at the time, it could be had on the door, perhaps. I'm not sure. But Depeche Mode, The Cure, Joy Division, all those kind of bands cracked the USA and became huge. And let's be honest, most of those bands have at their heart a sort of melancholy, a a darkness, Um, The Smiths, all that kind of stuff. But certainly The Cure, uh, Depeche Mode, bands like that 
cracked the USA. And I think they spoke to young people in a different way that the likes of Poison and Warrington Rat simply didn't. And I could see an element of the maybe I'm connecting things that are not possible to connect. But the USA didn't really have its own indie music, um, I suppose, as post-wave, post-punk bands to the same degree as the UK and the sort of melancholy and darkness at the heart of that seemed to influence the likes of the Alice and Chaineses and more so than the hard rock bands although one could say Alice and Chains were Alice and Chains with a Z at one stage when they had big hair so maybe I'm just connecting dots that don't need to be connected but it would seem to me that 80s hard rock was ripe for the plucking so to speak it was low-hanging rotten fruit. And along came Nevermind. And along came Grunge. And literally, Nevermind just swept the decks. Now, it swept the decks in a way, I suppose, for the mainstream labels. I mean, many, many hard rock bands in the 1990s still went on to sell half a million copies. And don't forget, Use Your Illusion 1 and 2 came out the same day, I think, as Nevermind, and went on to sell 20-plus million copies each. So certainly Nirvana didn't kill hard rock. Um, MTV's decision to take Headbangers Ball off the air in the 92 or 93 certainly killed death and thrash metal in the mainstream in the USA. You can see many, many bands, the likes of Overkill or Testament, have albums that are selling 100, 200,000 in the USA in the 1990s. And it just drops off a cliff somewhere when uh, Headbangers Ball disappears. But certainly Nirvana cleared the decks more so than the... Um, sort of revisionist rhetoric that the Sex Pistols killed hard rock. I mean, if you think about that as a statement, the Sex Pistols, never mind the bollocks, is what, 77, 76, 78? I should know that, shouldn't I? It's 77, or is it 78? Well, it doesn't matter anyway, because in 1980, you have Ace of Spades, you have Back in Black, you have Rush releasing records, you have Heaven and Hell, um, you have Judas Priest with British Steel. It certainly didn't kill hard rock, because all every single one of those records went on to sell millions. I mean, Rush sold four million copies of um, moving pictures in 1980 or whatever it was. So the idea that Sex Pistols killed hard rock is just untrue. But certainly Nirvana did for a lot of hard rock um, in 1992. Um, and it was clear that there was the winds were changing, movies were changing, mainstream entertainment was changing. People didn't want excess. They didn't want the veneer of the greed is good mantra through their music anymore. And that was one of the first sort of, um, I suppose, stepping stones towards rock being slowly removed from the mainstream culture. But it was replaced with another variant, the Soundgardens, the Pearl Jams, which were still hard rock. But anecdotally and very interestingly, I think, a friend of mine who'd worked for record labels since the early 80s, I'm going to skip through the grunge era period a little bit. I mean, there were many contributing factors as to why the things that we like uh, heavy metal, we like heavy metal. Um, why that changed, and that's really because 1980s heavy metal by 92 had run out of steam. Painkiller, Triumph of Steel, and Merciful Fate in the Shadows were the triumvirate of great rock metal albums that came out in 92 for me. But really after that, it's a bit of a wasteland. The Iron Maidens, the Judas Priests, they were kind of finished. And I remember distinctly um, when the 1990s started, for example, with Primordial playing Circle the Tyrants and Celtic Frost and having to say, this is not obituary, this is Celtic Frost. It was weird. That's a little microcosmic example, but it was like the 1980s had just disappeared from view completely by the time 1990 came along. And that's kind of what happened a bit to heavy metal. 
in the mainstream as we knew it. Iron Maiden were on there. We're just on the cusp of the Blaze Bailey era and all the awful records that came with that. Um, all the old heroes were had, you know, a lot of people had split up, had disappeared. And the stage was set for the Sound Gardens and the Pearl Jams and all those kind of people to take over. And music kind of changed for sure. But a friend of mine, like I said, who had worked for record labels since the early 80s, he told me a very fascinating story um, one time. He was working in a major label in the USA. I guess it must be 93, 94. And I think he'd been working on the kind of dying embers, raking over the dying embers of some of the hard rock bands from the 1980s. Because many of the Dawkins and the Rats and these kind of bands, even Motley Crue tried to do it. They tried to grunge down. They tried to down tune and have lots of stop starty riffs and um, change their image to be a bit darker and a bit gloomier. And it just didn't work because kids didn't want a grunge album from Dokken or a grunge album from Motley Crue. Um, they just didn't want that. They wanted the new bands, the Pearl Jams, the whatever else. And so for many 90s bands or 80s bands, there was a wilderness in the 90s. Saxon is a good example. They were in the wilderness for most of the nights but they hung in there in the 2000s they got their you know resurgence same with the Def Leppards who were one of the biggest selling bands of the 1980s if not the biggest selling UK band possibly in the 1980s I'm not sure about that but certainly up there who by the 1990s were literally I think playing to 800 to 1200 people they were so clipped of their wings that kind of music had been so shunned from the mainstream but I've been trying to tell the same little mini anecdote there three times in a row and sidetracked myself. Well, he told me that they were sitting in a boardroom in whatever major label, somewhere in 93, 94, and a manager came in uh, with the clipboard or the whiteboard, and this guy came in, this rapper, and they explained that this was the plan, that the new um, dangerous music to sell to white-class suburban um, kids was hip-hop and rap and that they were going to create there and then today the backstory, how many times he was shot at, this, that, the other. They were all very clever at tying in merch deals as the end of the 90s rolled on. Um, not to say, of course, that there wasn't genuine hip-hop and rap music, of course. But, of course, just like with hard rock in the 80s, for every classic, real hard rock band, you got the bands who were just literally, oh, right, sure, we might as well have a go at that as well. For every docking, there's a poison, so to speak. Just like in the 1990s when new metal crept in, there were lots of old uh, hard rock musicians from the 1980s who kind of moved with the times, the Deserbs or the Mudvanes, who were hair rock guys in the 1980s. Anyway, that's another story altogether. But um, this rapper dude who hadn't quite created his backstory and his manager, they created his backstory that day within the meeting room and they were all sworn to not discuss about it. Now, I don't know exactly who that was or how successful they were but certainly the idea was okay rock now is going to take a little sidestep and what we're going to do is introduce um, an element of a new danger to white middle class suburban kids something new and exciting and it was all tied he was tied into the fashion into the um, I, I heard stories of even runner boot companies used to go out into the sort of um, poor uh, areas in, across the United States and literally dump all the trainers out on the road and see which ones the kids like the most. Ah, I guess it stands to reason completely. And it's not, of course, that by, um, I'm sure conversations in the 1980s happened where somebody sat down with poison. I mean, ar uh, arguably... 
people have said that Poison didn't even really play on their first album. I don't know if that's true or not, but they certainly weren't able to play that well uh, live, that's for sure. However, I think that's probably a step too far, but it laid the ground for another kind of movement away from rock music. And um, you can see quite clearly then where new metal came off out of, because new metal was the amalgamation of uh, that sort of 90s hard rock uh, element. Some of the musicians who were involved in the late 80s, uh, they just moved sideways to adopt rap and hip hop into the music, whether it was Korn, whether it was Limp Bizkit, whether it was um, Linkin Park, etc. And the reality is that those bands, new metal, uh, let's say ground zero for new metal was 97 or 96, which is, which is ironically the zenith, not the zenith, the nadir of traditional heavy metal, I think. The worst years for heavy metal ever are 97, 98. These are, there's literally, it's before the rebirth of the underground again, the new wave of bands that were coming out in 98, 99, all the new black metal stuff. The black metal scene of the early 1990s by this stage is kind of bloated and a bit um, insincere. Death metal seems to have burnt itself out after that 89 to 91 element and like so what we perceived as traditional metal was pretty much in the doldrums and new metal came in and it was the last really big movement within rock bands were selling 10 15 million copies limp biscuit probably have up to 100 million record sales behind them and also it was the last gasp of the music industry uh in terms of completely owning the ball uh that everyone had to play with after that it got punctured somewhere in the mid to late 2000s and then we're pumped up and patched over right now as uh, most of the music industry staple labels bought their way into the streaming platforms but that's another story um, and so new metal really is the uh, is the last great big selling rock movement and then once it sort of dropped away well it just kept dropping and kept dropping and kept dropping to whatever we have now um it's quite complicated because the nature of what being an artist has changed drastically. And on that note, there will be the second ad read, which is metalblade.com. Use the promo code AA Podcast in North America for anything you wish to order, whether it's Cannibal Corpse to Primordial to many, many things. Um, go there, take a look, you get 10% off. So, what happened basically is that. And I was. This is what I've been trying to sort of work up to. Work up to is how um, being a musician or an artist has changed, and how why rock doesn't really fit into that algorithm. Um, and one of the first things I've got written here on my page of scribbly notes is infantilism. And this is something that um, I've said often in relation to other elements of society. But the idea is that once upon a time, rock music was targeted at teenagers. Whereas it's very clear that Ariana Grande or Cardi B or any of this stuff, this is music targeted between seven and 12 year olds. Uh, there's no denying it. I mean, one can only grimly look at the example of the Manchester bombings when uh, over 20 kids were killed at an Ariana Grande concert. And most of them were nine, 10 and 11 years old, tragically. But that is a rather grim, morbid example of the audience uh, for pop music. Pop music moved from being about teenagers and what teenagers wanted to being infantilized, which is why an awful lot of 
Doja Cat or whatever, this kind of stuff. I know. Who can believe I said that? Huh? Hmm. Well, that's courtesy of listening to the Tim Dillon podcast that I know some of these names. Um, this is this is almost like baby talk. It's infantilistic. It's preteen. It's sexualized marketing for preteens. And rock doesn't just rock just doesn't fit into that algorithm because every one of those you will notice if you've if you've walked around your if you've observed the billboards on your city for the last 20 years, you'll have noticed when you see festivals coming up. Um, we have La- Longitude Festival or is it Latitude? I don't know who knows which one. Um, I noticed the pop music festivals that um, were going 10, 15, 20 years that the, the billboards changed and they very often are just names of people. They aren't bands anymore because a band comes with a lot of baggage. It comes with a lot of gear. It comes with a lot with bands have guitars and blah, 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 blah. DJ culture changed a lot of stuff because a DJ could literally just go with a laptop and a USB clip and away you go. And people were more interested in dancing than going to see a live band. That's a very much a 1990s, 2000s thing. The dance music tent at most festivals across the UK and Ireland would have been more packed than, for example, people watching, I don't know, a Nick Cave if he was playing at a a, a pop style festival. And so those artists got quietly moved to the side for pop music artists. And the thing is that a band is complicated to market when it comes to uh, Instagram or YouTube or the fact that most modern musicians or, well, let's call them content creators who make songs. Uh, Rock bands make albums. Pop artists, as in singular names, they make songs. Because songs... And they all, you'll, you'll notice they all cross-reference each other's names on the songs um, because it's literally for nine-year-olds to play on their phone. And so what's driving many of the clicks in the algorithm for, you, you'll notice that that's, that song which was done by Norwegian comedians, What Does the Fox Say? This has something outrageous, like nearly a billion plays. It's because eight-year-olds are playing it. And they're the same eight-year-olds who then, when they're nine, are playing uh, Cardi B or whatever else. And there isn't any space for a rock band to fit into that demographic because it's purely aimed at very, very young people. But also, how does a young person identify with five members in a band? Um, It just doesn't really work like that. One of the reasons why Greta Van Fleet kind of doesn't really resonate. Okay, it's just a bad ripoff of Led Zeppelin. That's a different argument. But once the music got targeted uh, to much younger kids, then it had to turn. Then it had to become this element of infantilism. Now it does disturb me the fact that some of it is so graphically sexual and it's aimed at um, preteens. Because no matter what any of these pop people say, it's mainly kids listening to them. Um, but infantilism, uh, rock doesn't fit into the algorithm because right now. Being uh, an artist, or let's say a musician, I mean, they're, I suppose they're rather vague terms. It's like when we use the terms left and right now. I don't know if they're really applicable very often uh, when people keep throwing out fascism, communism, and you go, well, these are things from the 1920s and 30s, and very different. Well, that was a rather great overreach of an example. <laughs> I should have my own, um, you know, I'll get the tipex out with that one. No, what I mean is that uh, very much a modern day pop impresario will be of course have a fashion range will be doing tiktok videos will be doing um day-to-day hourly updates on their instagram stories they need to have the whole thing behind them the whole movement behind them and that is being able to edit small videos um you'll have fashion brands associated which is something that i think came from the hip-hop scene in the late 90s 
um, and it was adopted by most um, most pop people these days. And so if you're a young teenager, what seems edgy, dangerous and reckless, I suppose it's grime, uh, something like that. It's versions of hip hop still. It's certainly not 55 year old chunky Axl Rose bellowing across the stage anymore. There just isn't really any danger to rock music. It's been supplanted, replaced by electronic music for quite a long time now and been replaced by hip hop. And that's been gone going since the 1990s. But rock became legacy, nostalgia, old people's music. And the danger that was associated with the 1970s and 1980s rock band, whether it was the Rolling Stones all the way to the Guns N' Roses, that doesn't really happen anymore. I mean, if if, if the Foo Fighters with their saccharine sweet clawing muck, um, their tubs of molasses, if they are dangerous rock and roll, then rock and roll is in a perilous position. It just all moved underground. Uh, and I, to me... That's no problem with me. I'm quite happy with Heavy Metal's festival culture, with it being an underground thing. But that's not really what the podcast is discussing this time. It's about why rock doesn't resonate anymore. Um, there's also other practical and banal examples, one of which is that houses are built differently now. They don't necessarily have basements, which means that the old 1970s, you've seen it, the Detroit Rock City um, band in the basement, kids, you know, the Stranger Things guys retreat down to the basement to play their Dungeons and Dragons. Um, houses aren't built like that anymore and so lots of suburbs across America didn't have that drum kit in the basement and the guys in the band and stuff like that rather banal but it's true I mean in Ireland we don't build houses with basements generally uh, and so the idea of having a rehearsal place in your basement you know just never happened and so once rehearsal rooms are removed from the cities then you know there's there's other banal reasons why bands they have less places to play also i suppose the gentrification of areas across um, big cities whereby rent became too high for the local dive bar to be able to have rock music on a friday like literally um you know lockdown notwithstanding if you wanted to go and see like a, a rock and roll like a proper rock and roll scuzzy um i don't know c division helicopters band on a friday night in dublin it's pretty difficult. You can go to hot yoga on a Saturday morning and some slam poetry, but to go and see a rock and roll band at midnight, very difficult because usually what happens is bands have to play between seven and nine or ten. They get kicked out for the samba or salsa uh, club or whatever. The, if there's usually, um, you know, a gay club happening or something because venues are double, they're double booking. They're like they want the double amounts of money every night. So. Uh, the band first, club second. And there just isn't enough rock people because rock is not resonating with young people. So if you run a rock club, like I used to go to, whether it was the Cat House in Glasgow or used to go over there, it was crazy, like 1,200 people, four different floors, uh, the Slime Light in London, all these kind of places. They don't really exist anymore, as I can understand, because the, the clientele just got a bit too old. Uh, and they weren't replaced by young people. And that even in there, even anecdotally in the rock bars in Dublin, that's kind of what happened because rock wasn't speaking to any of these people. Um, so kids were going to just normal dance clubs, hip hop clubs, or they were going to, as I said, samba clubs. Even on my own street, there is uh, reggaeton clubs. Apparently that beat comes from Puerto Rico. Somebody should invade Puerto Rico um, and make them pay. But... You know, that's um, 
that sort of neatly brings me to another, uh, I suppose, reason why rock has a little bit less purchase, which is just a very simple one that most people don't really think about, and that's uh, immigration, I suppose. I mean, oh, that sounds really kind of odd, but as I said, the preserve, rock music is the preserve of um, white dudes with guitars once upon a time in the 70s and 80s. Um, the demographics of society have changed. Uh, they're just simply not the same uh, in most places. This is not to cast any, no political judgment on that or in any way whatsoever. But things have changed since 1975 or even 1985 when, you know, most of Ireland's bands were, uh, uh, you know, pasty faced suburban dudes trying to sound like you too. Uh, it seems like now, you know, anecdotally, you go and look around for a modern Dublin music and you'll find a kind of flourishing, as I said, grime scene uh, with loads of different ethnicities in it from Dublin. And that's what speaks to young people more. And that's probably mirrored all across um, Europe, all across big cities, as the uh, demographic, the ethnic demographics of cities have changed. So are the other musical influences within those cities changed. For example, you could say Irish people who left in the 70s and 80s, they brought trad music with them to their countries. They brought other influences. They had their own bars, this, that, the other. So it kind of stands to reason that the old order of rock was challenged by the movement of peoples. I mean, that's just, I suppose, uh, a state of mathematics, a state of demographics. But um, certainly old hard rock bands became legacy things. Um, things like the things that, we, you know, are our home, so to speak, musically, black death metal, all that stuff, was too extreme to really challenge the mainstream. Um, I would, of, of course, also maybe say something um, along the lines of society also changed. Society was less about heavy metal parking lot and, as I said, white dudes with guitars. Um, society w was, um, I suppose, on some level a little bit emasculated. It changed the element of, of um, I suppose, masculinity as defined by those bands. Oddly enough, I picked Judas Priest and Heavy Metal Parking Lot. But that altered, that changed. And so the music that people wanted that reflected their state of mind, their, their, their sexuality, their way they looked at rock and roll culture also changed. Of course, there was always space for rock and roll bands. And like I said, I'm not complaining about any of these things because I was quite happy for rock and roll to go underground. Never bothered me. Um, people could still tour. There was lots of festivals. I mean, that's one of the things that heavy metal really, really did survive with, which was festival culture, which was touring culture. OK, touring culture, you know, could be a little bit down here and there because everybody had to go out and tour because nobody was selling any records or making any money from streaming. But, and that's one thing you notice with pop music. There's no pop, there's no metal band or rock band that can um, really compete with the streams of um, some of these pop people I'm talking about who are in 500 million plus range and above because you know it's just 10 year olds playing the song every day on the phone on the when they're on the on the bus or whatever and so that kind of that has sort of left rock behind as well um but i think i want to maybe look a bit more at the whole content creation thing um, because you'll notice that um, there are big channels on the internet that belong to musicians in metal bands and rock bands, whether it's um, the, I, the guy Ola Englund from The Haunted, that kind of thing. Uh, and you'll notice that he has his own band before he joined The Haunted. But The Haunted were big before he joined. He didn't make them big. But I don't know if fans of his channel will go and see The Haunted when they play live. The point was he became big on being reviewing gear on other terms. And 
many rock and metal bands don't have a person like that within their band. But it would suit Ola Englund to be that person if he was a solo musician or solo artist releasing solo music under his name, which works for pop music, works for hip hop. If he was a hip hop review guy, but also made amazing hip hop on the side, it would probably work for him. But he's in the anachronistic uh, world of being in a metal band. And I would wonder if the YouTube views he has has a knock on effect to the music that he makes. I don't think so. Um, I don't think so, because rock and metal just isn't it doesn't work within that algorithm. Rock and metal doesn't really work really within TikTok, I think. Um, again, you know, when you're trying to, even though I, I suppose, I suppose, what's the word for? What's the word for it? I'm lost for words. Um, even though I'm talking about every scene and generation needing young people to breathe new life into it, I don't think that the uh, the, the, the characteristics of rock or metal really resonate with 8, 9, 10, 11, 12 year olds because pop music is looking for a very young capture but rock still relies on people being able to go to the venue, to the bar to go and see the band live certainly a 9 year old who likes uh, a pop music Ariana Grande isn't going to be immersed in the social culture of rock and metal it's not the same thing of course that's a very strange sentence but you understand what I mean so the capture is very different so for example, metal and rock trying to move into TikTok just feels like, you know, the awkward uncle who's a bit too old dressed up in the stuff that doesn't really fit at the wedding disco trying to dance with women half his age. It just doesn't really, the square peg doesn't go into that round circle, so to speak. Um, it just doesn't really work because rock and metal is too analog for that digi digital, um, that digital way of moving your medium and so third ad read is www.hatecouture616.com uh, lots of nasty and disgustingly offensive t-shirts all sorts of things board shorts inverted cross bottle openers who wouldn't want one of them right yeah, i know exactly go and use the promo code alan you get free shipping which believe me actually counts for a lot these days shipping is insane go and have a look so yeah, I was quite inspired by all these old VH1 docos when Rock ruled the Sunset Strip and all that kind of stuff. And it just got me thinking about what happened to rock and metal in the mainstream? Can it ever come back? No, I don't think so. I mean, you've got your few ghosts and that kind of thing making waves and, you know, pulling reasonable amounts of people. But compared to really, really, really big um, for acts in the mainstream, I don't think so. I think the age of even boy bands and girl bands is kind of gone. It's mainly just single artists who have every other angle covered and have a massive net social networking, social content um, network behind them. I, do I shed a tear about that? No, not really. Um, it doesn't really bother me, and that's the thing. Many of the documentaries discussing uh, what happened to rock music, they all kind of end with this hopeful rock will be back kind of uh, end to them or final statement and I don't believe that at all in fact it's not even what I would be worried about it doesn't bother me at all that rock isn't in the mainstream it had its moment in the 1970s 1980s and a variation of it in the 1990s but it just doesn't fit into the way society or the way culture I suppose popular culture works anymore there's also far less there's no college rock radio anymore um, the radio is kind of insignificant to what's online does anybody really 
um, log in online to listen to radio stations. There's a few, but not really. Uh, kids certainly don't. The idea of the DJ, the cult of the DJ, that doesn't really exist anymore. All of the old outlets don't really exist anymore. And I think probably, as I said, there's some of the banal reasons are quite um, great. The gentrification of cities um, so that there isn't. I mean, anecdotally, San Francisco, this happened to San Francisco. All the Silicon Valley people move into the cool area, which was full of all the crazy, cool um, gay bars and dive bars and all the rock and roll culture of San Francisco and they just change it because that's actually not who they are not what they want to live around and they change those cities and famous venues disappear um, the same thing happened in uh, many cities I mean whether it's Berlin Paris Melbourne London of course they're still there but people change as well and you know you could build a really cool rock bar in Dublin but would anyone go to it? I don't know. I think even after the recession in 2008, there was an awful lot of art spaces opened up, bring your own beer, kind of dive bar places. And the fact was that they weren't really that popular beyond the immediate people in a very small scene. Your average person kind of wasn't really that interested in them. And that's also one of the things you have to concede, which is market forces dictate. And market forces dictate, sadly, that there isn't a, a road of dive bars in Dublin that you can duck into one, duck into another, go and see a band here, go and see a band there. That's not really going to happen anymore. I don't think it will. Um, and if it does, you get that kind of fake, modern, old, curated bar. Um, we, had a, we had a great bar in Dublin city centre, which had a rockabilly, psychabilly club on a Thursday where you could go and see bands upstairs. There was a, like a Sunday was like a great old cool jazz band playing old dudes playing in the basement or on the ground floor and people outside drinking. And of course, it was bought over by corporate sponsors and literally overnight just turned into, um, you know, singer, songwriter, acoustic guitar. Awful, awful. Um, what we have here is a mixture when you get these um, they're not really trad musicians they play variations of trad songs for tourists mixed in with Wonderwall mixed in with um, Ed Sheeran and even reggaeton stuff all just aimed at this bland monochrome um, demographic of young people who seem to think that that constitutes live music and of course tourists and this is what sort of happens the uh, the banality of the evil of a multinational corporate oligarchy just invades your spaces and takes them for takes them for their own and regurgitates a sort of variation on the theme or just completely levels them and so like I said there just isn't any dive bar space rents are too high anecdotally I've said that about five times anecdotally hmm. uh, people I know who run bars they've had very little rent or debt relief during this whole situation or for the last 10 or 20 years and that's I think something that you see across most of the West most of Europe um, most big cities now would price out a small bar that at the basement might have 30, 40, 50 people venue um, because it's being made into uh, you know um, luxury apartments or whatever else so can it really come back? Can rock come back? I mean, look, ACDC can still fill stadiums and all the old legacy bands can still fill stadiums. Um, but eventually those bands have to disappear. And who are they to be re replaced by? 
Panic at the Disco. Um, I don't know. I don't really even know what they sound like. Um, Imagine Dragons, who would seem to be the top-selling rock band of the last 10 years, who I've never heard of. I mean, look, they probably do big numbers, but um, at least anecdotally, as I said, in the mainstream, rock is a legacy thing. And while it can continue to flourish through um, underground to mid-sized touring and have its own festival season, uh, who cares, really? Because society has changed, culture has changed. But certainly, rock doesn't have the teeth anymore. It doesn't have the danger. I mean, if Watain had managed to break through the boundaries to become the new Slipknot, then maybe. But all of our bands, they never really made it out the door uh, in the same way. I mean, if you look at... You look at thrash metal never sold what heavy metal before it did. Death metal never sold what thrash metal before it did. And then we're sort of stuck around the same place. Um, there's New metal came through, burst through, sold tens of millions in a way that uh, Slayers and Sepultura's never did. Uh, not of singular albums anyway. Uh, and now we're sort of in a position where we are left with our old legacy acts and our bands are have no purchase within the mainstream. Anyway, do we care? I don't care. Certainly not. However, anyway, episode 60. Did that make any sense? I don't know. I enjoyed talking about it, that's for sure, and mulling over the nature of rock. And I would advise going back and checking out some of those cool when hair rock ruled the Sunset Strip documentaries and all that kind of thing. And there's lots of really interesting music documentaries about the 80s and the 90s. And you can... You can watch some sort of some documentaries about what happened to um, rock in the 80s. There's definitely one recently I've been looking at, which is called the 80s Metal Recycle Bin, something like this on YouTube, which has interviews with lots of 80s hair metal guys, Warrant, um, Great White, um, all these kind of people. And almost to a man, they just discuss, yeah, 1992 came around and uh, all our posters came down in the local uh, record labels from the walls and in the stores and they were replaced by pictures of Kurt Cobain and his jumper and we kind of knew it was over and that's really strange to me because that means those bands often had a seven, eight, nine, ten year career and I look back and I go wow Primordial's 30 years 29 years since we're 15, 16 very strange because if our career had uh, had those huge highs of a million copies and then down and out by um, within seven or eight, nine years would have been very strange but you know Hair Metal Nation, all those kind of things. You can still go and see all of those ones. Dokken are still playing. Rat or variations of Rat. And all these bands are still playing. They never kind of went away. The Sunset Strip cockroaches just sort of kept kept going, kept around. And they enjoyed a resurgence in the last 10 years as a percentage, a small percentage of young people resonated with it. Anyway, what am I talking about? Who knows? Episode 60, my friends, is just a kind of companion piece to the um, the image of me as a teenage vampire um, reenacting moments from a Wasp video, which or a Twisted Sister video, which happened quite often as a teenager. It was, I suppose it was one a week, a variation on a theme. We're not going to take it, my friends, or we might, but just wake me up after noon. All right, episode 60, Agitators Anonymous. I am Alan Averill. Follow me on Instagram, Nymthianga underscore primordial, etc., etc. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. 
The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com. <laughs> 